Kurt Snyder's podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're right. Hello, and welcome back to The Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here without my normal co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham and Dr. Paul Williams. On this episode, I'm joined by two guests, Dr. Jeffrey Colburn, a returning guest who helps me as co-host on this episode interview Dr. Vin Tang Precha. Just a reminder, Dr. Colburn is a medical educator and endocrinologist. He works in the San Antonio area. He has won multiple awards for teaching. He's been on episodes of The Curbsiders, episode number one, where we talked about hypogonadism, and episode, I don't know what number it was, but another one where we talked about diabetes, where he was featured as our guest. And then he has helped me co-host on several episodes for endocrine-related topics. Our other guest, Dr. Vin Tang Precha, is a professor of medicine in the Division of Endocrinology, Metabolism, and Lipids at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Chang Precha has received his medical degree from Tufts University School of Medicine and completed his internal medicine residency and endocrinology fellowship at Boston University Medical Center. He completed a PhD in molecular medicine on the topic of vitamin D at Boston University School of Medicine. He currently serves as a program director for the endocrinology fellowship at and the American Board of Internal Medicine Physicians Scientists Research Track Internal Medicine Residency Program at Emory. He serves on the Endocrine Society Guidelines Committee for the Hormone Treatment of Gender Nonconforming and Gender Incongruent Patients and is a member of the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists and World Professional Association for Transgender Health, also known as WPATH. He is on the board of, their, he is on the board of directors for w, WPATH. He is a co-author of the WPATH Standards of Care for Transgender Persons. He has received a number of awards, including the first Emory Transgender Advocate Award in 2011 and the American Association for Clinical Endocrinologists 2016 Outstanding Service for an Underserved Community for his work with the transgender community. He maintains a busy practice in Atlanta serving the transgender community at three hospitals, including Emory Main Campus, Emory Midtown Hospital, and Atlanta VA Medical Center. Needless to say, I am thrilled to have Dr. Tang Precha as our guest, teaching us some of the basics about caring for transgender patients in primary care. I hope you enjoy it. This is Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my fill-in co-host, everyone's favorite fill-in co-host, Dr. Jeffrey Colburn. Yeah, of course, always trying to apply for Paul's job. Yes, so exactly. We're speaking that. Yep. <laughs> yeah, Paul, very insecure when you're on the show, Jeff. Oh, that's good. That's my job. Keep him on his toes. And with yep. us, and with us today is Dr. Vin Tang Precha. Hi, Dr. Tang Precha. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so excited to have you on the show. And and as we talked about before, we'll we'll drop the last names for from here on. So so Vin, if you had to sum up for our audience in a one liner kind of, how would you describe yourself to give them a little sense of who you are? Um, well, I'm a academic endocrinologist 
at Emory in Atlanta, and uh, I've been um, involved in trans health care for uh, the past 15 to 20 years now, and, um, you know, I've been a person involved in developing guidelines and trying to uh, push forward the research in trans health. My other interest is vitamin D, and that could be another topic for another show. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> Those are my two main areas. Anything outside, uh, anything you're doing for, for wellness, uh, kind of balance in your life outside of medicine? I'm a huge sports fan. Um, I always uh, cheer for the home team, um, big Atlanta Hawks and Atlanta Braves fan, and I uh, coach youth sports. That's how I get my activity and my exercise. Yeah. Uh, I've, been, I've coached uh, my son's baseball team for 15 seasons in a row. And, oh, wow. And uh, I just retired from coaching his basketball team after we won the championship. So yeah, that's I'm, good. I'm done with that one. And ended on top. <laughs> yes. Then before we move on to the the topic of transgender health, I wanted to ask just a couple more more questions here. Is there a uh, a book that you would recommend to the audience? It doesn't necessarily have to be a book for uh, physicians or healthcare professionals, but just any book that you think is helpful that that they might read. It could be fiction or nonfiction. Um, I really liked uh, Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point. I read that a few years ago, and. Um and just like the concept that little small changes can lead to big things. And so it was a really, um, I thought it was a great non-medical book to read. And if it, I'm sure if no one's, if people oh, have I've read, read it, it yeah. recommend read it. Yeah, sure it's a very popular book, but I, I'd recommend others to, to read it. Yes. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell, just a fantastic writer and thinker. And his, his audio books are great too. He's He's got a great voice and he has a podcast now where it's kind of like okay. a mini version of his books uh, it, it, per episode. So it's, it, he's a great guy. How about great. a medical, how about a medical app that you might use on a daily basis or that you could recommend to the audience? I love the uh, ACE, um, that stands for American Association for Clinical Endocrinology um, apps. They have very practical apps on diabetes, osteoporosis. Uh, I use those all the time in clinic. Um, You know, they're very uh, intuitive, interactive. So when I'm not sure about what I should do next, I open up that app. And they're they're free for download, so they're great resources. Great. And last question that I'll ask you up front here. What is some great advice that you've received throughout your career in medical education, whether it was as a learner or as a teacher? Uh, well, my mentor was uh, Michael Hollick, and he uh, he told me, um, you know, if you like to fish, you have to fish a lot. And that meant um, if you wanted to publish or get grants, you really had to try a lot mm-hmm. uh, to get a lot to get a lot of papers or grants, and you just have to keep trying. So. I've uh, really tried to follow that advice. That that's the the Boston University connection there because I I went there for medical school, and yep. and uh, Doctor Hollick was definitely he he makes his presence known. He is if if you haven't, I'll put a, a link to one of his uh, YouTube videos. I think he has one of yeah. his vitamin D lectures on there. Yeah. Um. I was actually showing it to one of my other co-hosts, Stuart, in clinic uh, one day last year because I was like, oh, you haven't heard of this guy. you got to see his lecture. And uh, fortunately, it was on YouTube. So that's a great guy. Okay. Well, since we have limited time, let's move in and talk about 
the the main topic here, which is going to be transgender uh, transgender care and primary care is probably what I'm going to be calling this episode or something along those lines. And uh, the idea for this episode came with uh, my discomfort in uh, understanding how to interact with these patients and and how to best serve them uh, as as a primary care. So. What I wanted to start off with is, let's say you you have a patient coming into your office saying that uh, it's, let's say it's a 25-year-old natal male coming into your office saying he thinks he's experiencing gender dysphoria, wants, wants to know about possibly transitioning to, uh, to, to become a female, and wants your advice on what to do. So, uh, Vin, I wanted to ask about before we even start this, can you sort of define some of these terms like gender, gender identity, gender dysphoria? What are the terms the audience needs to know to really kind of delve into this issue? So there's a lot of terms that that can be confusing for people sort of new in the field. So I can um, talk about them. So gender identity is your uh, very your one's deep uh, held internal self of yourself, and that means uh, usually. Um, People have a binary expression, meaning they feel that they are more masculine or feminine, although we're getting a much more um, larger appreciation for people in the non-binary, meaning that they fall in between um, masculine or feminine or neither the two. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's gender identity. Um, gender dysphoria is when you have a um, feeling that... Um, that your gender identity doesn't match uh, what has been assigned to you. Um, so you could be male uh, assigned at birth gender, and uh, you feel that there's a mismatch. You don't feel that you are don't don't have a masculine identity. So when you have that mismatch, you have a something called gender dysphoria. And in the in the DSM, it was DSM four. It was it was referred to as gender identity disorder, which mm-hmm. is, I guess, the the term disorder was was something that was kind of a sticking point. It's now in the DSM five called gender dysphoria, and th- there's also something called gender nonconformity. And I guess that I think it's also d- important to differentiate between those two. So my understanding yeah. is gender nonconformity just means that. The person doesn't necessarily, like you said, confirm to gender as being binary, where they 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 don't necessarily conform to the standard role assigned to them based on their birth sex, which is usually just yep. done by whatever external genitalia that they have. Versus this gender dysphoria means that they they have some sort of distress. There's there's distress based on the fact that they may feel more identify with female, but they were natally assigned this, uh, the sex of male uh, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. So the distress is the main thing because I guess just gender exactly. nonconformity doesn't necessarily, those they may have no distress. They might be perfectly comfortable mm-hmm. not conforming to the, the standard gender roles is the way that I, I had read it. That's true. And I think, uh, I mean, the terminology is changing so quickly. Um, uh, the reason the gender identity disorder term was taken out is we were labeling um, trans people as having a disease. Mm-hmm. And gender dysphoria is a little bit of improvement, but it's still uh, more, it still falls under sort of the disease model that people have something wrong with them. 
And so I think the term gender nonconforming or gender nonconformity is a much more uh, accepting term uh, because, as you're right, there are people who express their gender in a way that um, they feel fine. And it's not uh, a disease or nothing is wrong with them. And I think we're moving towards terms that are uh, less um, pathogenizing. Um, right. Uh, it's interesting. It's challenging to get medical care to people unless, you know, we have established ICD-10 codes and these sort of things yep. that um, allow for the payers to, to give uh, established payment. So I think that somewhat drives a little bit of that dysfunction in our ability to uh, talk with patients about um, where they're moving and their, where they see themselves mm-hmm. and their identity. And um, another interesting point just to not mentioned, I guess, in the, the thinking of this is, you know, Matt, you mentioned how we kind of classically assign people based on sex chromosomes and anatomy. And then when we think about gender, we're also encompassing things like social construct around individuals. And I, I find it interesting that, you know, in the 1800s, pink was mm-hmm. the boy's color when a boy was born. But now if you get a blue cap in a hospital, you are, you are a boy. And, um, you know, things change over time. And you've got people like Danica Patrick, who is a female, who's a NASCAR driver, um, and that's a role or a gender role that a job or position that's been held by a certain gender. And so there's certain things in our environment, our social construct, that kind of make us think, oh, this is a masculine or feminine individual. Yeah. And so it's it's complicated. There's a lot of social construct with it. Yeah, I agree, Jeff, because like if, if we you know were to create a society from scratch and all the females were the race car drivers, then, you know, that's what would be not totally accepted. And a sex assigned at birth male may have gender dysphoria. This would say, hey, well, I like to drive race cars and I don't mm-hmm. fit the society norms for that. So it is complicated. The last term that the last terms that I wanted to just clarify more for myself, the terms transsexual and transgender, are, can they be used inter- mm-hmm. interchangeably or is there some nuance there that, that I'm missing? Yeah, um, the term transsexual is a term also falling out of favor. It was a term used for many years, and um, it was a term to describe uh, sort of the binary person, the person who was sex assigned at birth um, in one gender and uh, wanted to change to the other gender. But I think it was a very restrictive term and mm-hmm. didn't describe the entire uh, trans community, whereas transgender is anyone that can fall along the gender spectrum. Right. Uh, sometimes I like to use the word trans. It seems more uh, um, encompassing for most people's expression, although I think people are moving towards gender nonconforming or... Uh, um, other term. I'm sure the terminology yeah. will change another Some year. Of the, in the WPATH guidelines, they were talking, or the, the standards of care, they were talking about uh, gender diversity, meaning that the mm-hmm. person the, the person could have any number of different uh, terms that they prefer, and you just kind of have to ask them. Some some people go by gender queer, which is where they don't they don't go. They can kind of pick and choose from any. Uh, both genders, and they may not conform more as male or more as female, that, and, and that would be gender queer. At least that's my understanding of it. Yeah, I think that's right, because I don't... Uh, I mean, we're we're getting a much better appreciation of all the different gender expressions that, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think we're slowly evolving terminology to fit that. 
And I think, you know, when I work with trainees or people new to this, there's a lot of fear of making a mistake. And I think just telling people, you know, um, it's okay to, you know, just apologize if you make a mistake. Um, if if you're impro- approaching someone who's starting care with this, asking them how what they prefer for a pronoun, for he, she, um, him, her, uh, for pronouns, kind of, and if you've made a mistake, um, you know, when individuals are in a transition of their gender identity, um, sometimes they may not pass the idea of passing, meaning that they are looking like the gender that they identify with very well. And so, for example, a natal sex female who cuts her hair short may not yet pass as a male unless other things happen. And so for those individuals kind of stuck in that not yet passing um, as the gender they're trying to transition into, if they are trying to go to, into a binary, um, you may make a mistake. And just apologizing and, and you know being respectful, I think, um, it's okay. I think um, just I tell that to trainees that they don't they're not as fearful about mm-hmm. just getting involved. You know, Vin, I wanted to ask you in in the office. You had sent me a video kind of to help prepare for this talk, which I thought was great, and I'm definitely going to link to. What sort of small changes can you make in your office environment to make this a more welcoming environment for for uh, people who identify as trans? Well, um, I mean, the first thing is uh, kind of to piggyback what Jeff says, never assume um, that you know what people um, want to be called. And so, you know, I always ask, um, you know, what name do you want to be called? What pronouns do you want to use? Uh, I think for office staff, it's important to make the intake forms more um, friendly of different gender expressions. So uh, having um, a few more um uh, genders listed would be much more welcoming for a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think also training the office staff not to immediately call call out Mrs. or Sir from the waiting room. I, I know we're in the I'm in the South, so they there's always ma'ams and right. <laughs> everyone's very polite, but that could cause a very uncomfortable situation. So I tend to um, ask them to call out by their last name. Um, that's usually pretty gender neutral, and then when they come in um, uh, to the to the exam room, uh, you know the staff should ask what names they'd like to be called, and that should be written down mm-hmm. on their intake form, and what pronouns they want to use. And um, you know, you know, um, you know, like Jeff said, sometimes you make mistakes, but I think most patients appreciate that you at least not acknowledge that you made a mistake, and. Um, you know, and then just try to correct yourself. And you just have to, I mean, I always definitely try to document my notes, the pronouns and names, so I don't make that mistake the next time. And I wanted to, so, something that was pointed out to me by uh, one of our correspondents who was helping me with the research for this was the the concept of just maintaining confidentiality. Is, is that a is that something that you're you're highly in tune with in your practice by by not accidentally outing people? Yes, um, you know, a few years ago, you know, people wondered if we should have a specific gender clinic, and I've asked some of my um, uh, patients about that. But I think some people don't want to have uh, a special one. You know, you know, Monday afternoons is only the people with um, gender. Mm-hmm issues. Um, They want to be just seen with the general population. So I try not to, you know, um, help people that way. So they just come in for a general endocrine clinic and, you know, they're in with other endocrine patients. And um, 
some people want the documentation to be very careful, um, especially people who've uh, many years post-transition don't want their past to be um, documented. So if it's not necessary to the medical record, I don't document that. Um, obviously, if things are, you know, if there are uh, organs that are still remaining that are important to document, then I have to document that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think those kind of things... Um, uh, just sort of talking, discussing with the patient what's important to the, for the patient. Well, let's let's dig into this first office visit. So we have a, a 25-year-old trans woman. So again, this is a person who was sexually assigned the sex of male at birth, but is now living as a trans woman, wants, wants to, to come in and talk with you. Let's say this person's coming to you for, they want medical treatment, what are you going to talk? What what has to be done? What boxes have to be checked before you can start providing hormone therapy for this this trans woman that's coming to see you, who's only undergone a social transition so far? Yeah. So I mean, the two th- key things I think for an endocrinologist, any or anyone providing hormones, is to make sure they're ready and eligible for hormone treatment. So uh, ready means that um they're in a safe environment they're um they're they're close um companions or family members know um their work environment is safe and it's just the right time to start hormones uh, eligible means that they um <clears throat> this is something that's not going to exacerbate any other medical conditions that they may have mm-hmm. and that um they're their uh, gender dysphoria isn't caused by something else underlying, and that's very rare. Mm-hmm. But um, basically, that their gender dysphoria is uh, permanent, and it's, they're not sort of still exploring. Um, so, I mean, this sometimes can take a while to establish, and um, that's why some I do like to work with some uh, gender therapists to help work out these issues. Uh, people who um, still have um, social or other issues may benefit from seeing a gender therapist alongside with me. Uh, but some patients are already, you know, like you said, may, the, the person may have already did a tr- social transition. They're very well plugged in family supportive. They may have family members with them. Uh, They have a good network of friends. You know, maybe the gender therapist isn't as helpful, but I still think they should have someone help them during the transition. So I think everyone's different in terms of when they're the support group and readiness is um, the star hormones. So then one of the things I know that the Endocrine Society guidelines um, look for in uh, before starting some hormones uh, for patients would be in in that readiness uh, tab that you mentioned is this idea yeah. of real life experiences acronymed by RLE um, mm-hmm. or and the idea that um, patients should have an evaluation or ongoing care with behavioral health. Can you kind of speak to those two points of kind of requirements from the Endocrine Society? Well, the real life experience um, was removed for this new update 2017 mainly because um it's first of all it's hard to explain what that i mean what what a real life experience is and it's hard to document if you've done well with that um and sometimes that it's a big barrier because you can't have a real life experience without uh, going on hormones first. 
so and just be there's so much so many issues with the real life experience so that was removed from both the endocrine society and WPATH guidelines but I think um, you know I, I think what the endocrine society uh, wants to ensure is that people are really starting hormones at a safe time in their life and um, they have all the support necessary to to help with the transition um, you know, I think some endocrinologists or primary care doctors are very comfortable with the process, so uh, maybe there's less support needed. But those who are relatively new, uh, you know, I'd recommend a, uh, a gender therapist. And usually, they're gen- when I say gender therapist, that's usually a psychologist or a psychiatrist or even social worker who could, um, you know, uh, talk to the patient and um, ensure that everything is. Uh, all taken care of in terms of social transition and in terms of mental health. Uh, I think the biggest concern is the high risk of suicide um, in trans people um, before starting hormones, which we hope goes down after starting hormones. But uh, you know, things can come up during the transition that uh, may increase risk of suicide or depression. So I think it's always good to have someone there in case that arises. And so then when you're thinking about uh, making sure there's a support system and you're starting to evaluate this person, do you also look for, so you mentioned the comorbid risk of um, mm-hmm. behavioral health concerns, maybe depression, anxiety, suicidality. Do you look for other things like substance abuse or what other sort of things are on your radar to, to consider? Yeah, uh, substance abuse is one, Home uh, homelessness is very tricky um, because that's also associated with potential physical and sexual violence. So there may be people who don't have a stable home environment where uh, starting hormones may increase their risk for that. So, you know, we try to get people into a, a, a better social situation so that doesn't happen. The violence. And I've had, pac- I've had patients tell me that they, you know, smoke or drink to kind of cope with mm-hmm. some of the before they're able to transition some of that dysphoric um, uh, process that they're going through. And so I think sometimes, you know, we're labeling people, you're a smoker, you're a drinker, these sort of um, mm-hmm. caustic labels that are, you know, uh, stigmatizing. And, and what I think a reality that's going on is there's a lot of struggle um, trying to come to a conclusion or come to a point um, of realization. And in, in the midst of those struggles, there's coping that can occur with substance. So just you know, not trying to ostracize or stigmatize, but just trying to be sensitive to um, some possible risks, I think. Yeah, I, I guess the, I guess the main point is that, the, the, you know, these, these issues are these issues of substance abuse or mental health are not necessarily something inherent in these people. It's, it's probably something that was born out of the, the distress that they've been going through um, by, by not kind of not conforming to the, the social norms and, and, or, and sort of being feeling the pressure that they, they, they should. So I think it's a, it's just to point out to the audience that don't necessarily assume that these that these mental health issues are are driving things. They're more of a result of the this this distress that these people have been undergoing. 
Yeah, I mean, I've seen a number of people quit smoking, quit drinking after um, starting on hormones. And there have been a lot of studies showing that the initiation of hormones leads depression, anxiety, improves quality of life. So, uh, as Jeff was saying, the, 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 the internal struggle is probably what's driving these other um, issues, uh, substance abuse issues. Are, is there the same sort of data for for surgical interventions for the for these patients that that also helps uh, improve quality of life or satisfaction? Um, we don't have um, a lot of long term data because um, for many people surgery is out of out of reach uh, at least in the past. So now now a lot of companies are covering it under their insurance plans, but. Um, the only data we have are some regret data and very few regret having surgery. Most people, I would say 98% of people are very satisfied that they had the surgery. I think what happens is most people then just um, slip in um, into society and um, may or may not still identify as trans, so it's hard to follow these people. What are the barriers? You mentioned the barriers for surgery how for cost of let's just start with medical therapy insurance the cost the logistics of it how available is this for for patients who may or may not have uh good resources financially yeah medical treatment is um becoming more available uh i know most insurance insurance companies uh, cover it. I've never had an issue with a person who had insurance that refused to pay for hormones. So for the insured populations, I think is very well covered. Uh, for student health plans, it's covered and, and faculty health plans. I think the biggest issue is the uh, under or no insurance population. Uh, many community health centers, um, at least the big ones, uh, haven't been covering it recently, but um, just recently in town, our uh, large hospital, Grady Memorial Hospital, just started a uh, trans health clinic and they started to cover it for the underinsured population in Atlanta. And those are popping up all over the country. And some of the big ones that have been doing it for years, like Callan Lord in New York, they've been providing hormonal coverage for, for underinsured people for a long time. Um, but it's just not, uh, it hasn't really gotten there yet. So. It's hard for the under or no insured person. Um, most of those people may have to resort to uh, either self treatment or, um, you know, finding hormones some other method, which is probably not the, not as safe, not not safe at all. Probably yeah, that sounds that sounds dangerous. Well, what yes. what is the cost? So, for medical therapy, someone on insurance, are we talking hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars a year? Is it is it? Can you do you have any sense of that? Um, I mean, the hormones are pretty cheap. I mean, hormones in itself would run anywhere. If it was a cash-paying person, probably I would say low-end $50 a month to a high-end of $200 a month. So mm-hmm. it, it's it's not like cheap, completely cheap, but it's I think it's within reach for people who are working right. and have an income. But for those without an income, it's uh, it's a little bit out of reach. And now you mentioned the surgical, the the challenge of of getting surgery covered. So what is happening? What's happening there? What how? What sort of cost are they looking at there? What sort of insurance insurance barriers are there? Well, many of the um, 
uh, insurance companies are cover. Well, I would say all all the insurance companies can cover it. I've heard it's really the employer who decides to provide that as a benefit to their employees. Um, it's um, I know that that was the case here at my university that they the their insurance company said, hey, we covered if if you know if the university would check the box saying they would mm-hmm. provide that benefit, and after much discussion, um, you know the university decided to provide that benefit. It really wasn't much more. It didn't increase the ins- everyone's worried they'd increase the premiums for everyone at the university, but it mm-hmm. really isn't that much and. Um, if you look at the list of Fortune 500 companies and universities, most of them are now providing that benefit. Uh, typically, the benefit's 80% of the uh, surgery, and uh, the and the person pays 20% out of pocket. Uh, I think the biggest issue is the supply of surgeons. There really aren't enough well-qualified, well-trained surgeons who could could do the uh, the surgery properly, um, and I think that's tr- they're, they're trying to change that through uh, different training initiatives around the country. But um, unfortunately, there are a lot of surgeons who are rushing to get their name on this list, but who may not have proper training. And I think uh, I, I think people need to thoroughly investigate uh, the qualifications of the surgeon because I tell my patients you only get to do this once and you really need to make sure you're seeing the right person for you and um, your research. Then correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't the WPATH maintain a list of uh, surgeons that they feel are qualified, maybe vetted well? We're getting close to that. We're not. We we have a relationship with a group of gender surgeons, and um, you know, I think right now we've asked them to sort of vet amongst themselves who is a qualified gender surgeon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't yet have a uh, publicly available list. Um, so um, we're not quite there, but hopefully there will be a time when that's available. Yeah. Going back to the patient, um, as we think about, you know, their readiness is is getting established. We've kind of mm-hmm. talked around a few issues. Um, you'd mentioned that there are medical concerns we want to mm-hmm. investigate um, as part of that readiness. And and yep. um, what does that look like as far as your initial maybe laboratory evaluation for the patient? Yeah, so if someone who is wishing to uh, transition to a female, um, you know, I always double-check that there's no history of blood clots, um, pulmonary embolisms, just because the estrogen can exacerbate that. And so if there's a a risk of that, I would like them to uh, get that worked up a little further. Um, If there's any, um, you know, history of... um, hepatitis uh, or HIV, which is very common or, or more common in the trans uh, population than the um, general population. And uh, I think it's a good idea to have that evaluated. We're not talking about delaying hormone treatment. I mean, I may um, uh, simultaneously start at least low-dose hormones, but, uh, you know, have them see specialists. Well, for the blood clots, I would like them to see specialists before I start the hormones, but we may start uh, the testosterone blockers as well. There are other conditions like, you know, cancer. People may have pre-existing hormone-sensitive cancers that may want to have that checked out. But uh, with that being said, um, you know, people are starting younger and younger now, and we don't see that 
much more morbid conditions anymore because people are starting in their 20s and now teens and most people are coming in just with clean medical records which makes it much easier for me and so when you think about the medicines that that we're using we're we're doing two things we're blocking the uh, intrinsic testosterone level for this patient and so we're using spironolactone usually for that um, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, we're adding estrogen to the system for feminizing mm-hmm. effect and usually mm-hmm. using uh, I guess I would ask what do you usually use are you using pills patches or injections or come or kind of leaving it to the patient yeah I usually leave it to the patient I tell them you know we have pills and I give them pros and cons of pills shots gels patches uh, you know, I tell patients, you know, they all work. They all get your blood level to the right uh, amount uh, as long as we're titrating the dose and checking levels frequently. Um, but I, you know, usually I think it's 50 50. They, most people will start on pills because of the convenience and costs. Some people want to start on shots um, because I guess uh feel that might be better, but I don't think there's any data for that. But the people who go on shots eventually change back to pills because it's just, it's just you know, challenging to shoot yourself every week or every other week. And so, and I know the, the Endocrine Society guidelines put the doses and kind of the levels you're shooting for for estradiol, mm-hmm. which is what we're checking, the E2. Yep. Um, uh, so those are pretty nicely in the tables there. Um, uh-huh. You know, with like you mentioned, younger patients have good kidney function, so I'm not worried about the potassium going real high uh-huh. on the spironolactone reasoning. And then the blood clots, um, you know, I, I advise them all to uh, stop smoking to, to yep. kind of reduce that risk and kind of outline that. Yep. Um, for this patient, you know, with those medical concerns kind of addressed, um, and uh, would you, uh, when you talk about starting therapies, uh, does fertility come up as a uh, issue for these patients on, on hormones? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, at, the, at the first visit, before starting hormones, you, you definitely have to discuss fertility. Um, we're finding that many trans women and men want to have children, um, but they're just not fully taking advantage of the current technology for future fertility. Uh, it's very hard for a young person to make that decision. We have some teenagers that come in and they haven't, you know, they're still thinking about high school and college and thinking of having kids is, mm-hmm. seems so far away from them. But um, some people do um, decide to bank their gametes um, for trans women. That means sperm banking for trans men, uh, meaning um, saving some eggs. Although that technology is not as advanced as the sperm banking, but there are some facilities that will uh, freeze your uh, eggs. Um, but... And- if as far just as to be we clear, know, no one's, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, just to be clear, even if this patient did not have an orchiectomy, uh, our trans woman uh, patient, um, if they were on hormones, uh, spironolactone and estrogen for, you know, a period of time, would that render them infertile? Would that, could that occur? Uh, yes, at some point. We don't know when that exactly transitions to a permanent infertility. We've had some patients who changed their mind later and a year later into the hormones decided to 
um, bank sperm, and fortunately for some, we've been able to get some, but that involved a very uncomfortable period of time off hormones. So I, I tell people it's, that that's not a, that's not advisable if you if you want to if you're even thinking about it. I would just go ahead and bank it because it's it's not a great feeling to be off hormones. But we've had some people who have been on hormones, you know, two or three years and and wanted to collect sperm, but um, after a few months couldn't get sperm. And it was just got to a point where it's so uncomfortable. Um, you know, they they could have went for more advanced reproductive uh, treatment to obtain sperm, but um, it just it was it was not a good feeling, and the patient just started to go back on hormones. So, when the complications of therapy or side effects, you know, are addressed mm-hmm. well, I, I often refer them to. You'd mentioned then uh, the Callan and Lord Center. Mm-hmm. They have good standardized consent forms, which Mm-hmm. Make sure I don't miss things to mention with the patients and give the patient opportunity to ask me questions about yep. the therapy. So I, I use those forms more to kind of prompt me to remember to bring things up. But so another uh, area that I think is asked or there's confusion on is once hormone therapy started and the levels we're looking for achieved, you know, what's the expectation for our patient to start seeing body changes that they're they're looking for. They're looking for that skin softening, for that yep. female fat distribution um, for this patient that we're here. When, when does that start? When does that peak? Yeah, it's important to go over the time frame of changes uh, to make sure expectations are met. And, um, you know, I tell people it's like going through puberty again. It can take two to three years to reach a maximum effect. Uh, some of the initial changes may not start until two or three months into hormone therapy. I tell my patients the first thing uh, most people is just they feel uh, 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 emotional changes. They just feel better. They feel their mood is better, and they feel like they're finally on the right treatment. And then the physical changes really don't start until two or three months into it. And um, if we don't see changes by then, I know then we're the levels are not correct. And that's why um, medical monitoring is very important because uh, the doses may have to be titrated up to get the, the right benefit. And I've had patients that have brought this idea of, well, if I make my levels even higher, maybe things will happen mm-hmm. faster or better. Like for this patient, I'll have you know, a bigger cup size or it'll happen faster. Yeah. Uh, can you speak to that? Yeah, I try to tell people it doesn't work that way with hormones. Uh, you know, if you increase your levels way too high, and actually your body actually um, can um, become resistant to the levels, or the hormone that you're increasing really high can be changed to the other hormones, so you could be uh, going against what you desire. Uh, hormones don't. I mean, hormones themselves, I tell people it's just like turning on a a switch to the machine, and it takes a while for the machine to make the proteins that your body needs. It it doesn't just, um, it can't happen overnight. There's, uh, it takes some time. So, you know, I think what we're shooting for is making your blood look like the the gender that you want to go to, and uh, and it's just going to take time. There's uh, nothing I could do to accelerate that process. Vin, I, I wanted to I wanted to thank you for talking with us. I know that you have to jump out to another meeting here. So I wanted to just ask if uh, before we let you go, you could give our mm-hmm. audience a couple take-home points that you want them to know about caring for transgender patients in primary care. 
So I think the, the key take-home messages are, um, you know, there's a lot of resources out there, so don't feel that you can't do this. Um, you know, um, there are resources from the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, WPATH, or the Endocrine Society guidelines that give very clear guidance to what needs to be done. Uh, you know, I think the hormonal care is pretty straightforward and it's pretty easy. Uh, I just think uh, most people just have to, you know, um, get comfortable um, with, with dealing with this unique population. And I think the main thing is just really listening to your patient and really uh, having a uh, conversation with the patient, you know, what they need or what they need and um and just trying to learn more and i suggest people just uh if they want to learn more go go to some of these wpath courses or download some of their their um, resources from their website awesome thank you so much i i really appreciate your time and uh i will let you know when this is going to come out uh probably in a, in a couple weeks here after i i, I do some editing so I'll, I'll let you know um and thanks, thanks. It went by so fast. And it, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was so much. This could have gone for three hours. That's you know. very true. That's very true. I think uh, doc, uh, Dr. Colburn and I will, uh, Jeff and I will stay on for a little while here. We might uh, try to yep. tie up some loose ends. Yep. Sounds great. All right. All right hey, thanks, guys. Thank so thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. So Jeff, let's uh well something I think we could maybe spend a few more minutes on is just uh talking a little bit about how the female to male transition would differ and then just maybe a little bit about the surgical considerations and what that means for screening and then I think we could wrap up. Yeah. yeah Do you have a sure. few minutes? I I, I want to oh, be absolutely. respectful of your time too. No, okay. no, I I'm I'm good for as long as you need. Okay. Well, we so we just talked about the the monitoring of we have a a trans a trans female basically natal male transitioning to female and and monitoring monitoring the you said it was the estradiol levels how often are you seeing these people back when you start them on medication and and how often are you checking labs yeah so the recommendations and the guidelines are once uh, hormones are started to consider checking their uh, goal estradiol level and to check their uh, renal function panel just for the potassium to ensure we're not sending that through the roof um, with the aldactone, um, to check those labs every three months for the first year of therapy. And then uh, potentially once, and that's mostly to ensure that they're at their goals and, and uh, feeling okay with their transition. And then once they've made it through that first year, considering to back off to maybe twice a year or even for some that are doing really well, once a year visits um, for refills and ensuring that they're on the right pathway. Um, But yeah, as Vin had stated, you know, it's actually, I think, easier than what people anticipate. I think the making sure the readiness is set up and uh, looking at uh, just just common health concerns um, with um, uh, uh, doing appropriate cancer screening for, for the age of your patients, um, making sure that they're not smoking to decrease the risk of DVTs on the estrogen. And if they have poor renal function, maybe checking that potassium sooner than the first that three months, maybe check it a week after we put them on the aldactone. With with a trans male, the medical therapy there, can you, can you speak to that a little bit and, and how would the monitoring be different? When you take a female 
and transition to male, you know, you're basically androgenizing that template, but, you know, at an adult stage. And that actually tends to play off pretty easy. And the therapy is simply just testosterone. Um, it's applied at the same doses that you might be familiar with giving hypogonadal males. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's done with either gels, topical gels, um, or with injections. And so those doses are the same as we typically think about in hypogonadal males. That testosterone is usually enough to suppress um, their own intrinsic estradiol, is enough to suppress menses. It may take uh, a couple of months to fully suppress menses, but typically um, it, it just plain old testosterone, and it actually plays off quite quick and quite easy. Um, for those that don't have full suppression of menses, you know, that's definitely a concern for them because that kind of outs the gender if they're mm-hmm. looking for that binary male gender. Um, and so um, you could give like Depo-Provera or Provera, um, which are, you know, uh, common contraceptive injections that uh, females will get to just suppress their menses if they need help with that. So pretty simple, actually, on that side of it. And then, again, the same checking at three, six, um, 12 months, um, so every three months in that first year, just to make sure the level's looking okay. Um, main side effect there is going to be the effect of androgens are to increase hematocrit. And so red blood cell count will go up. And if you can imagine, our blood is about half cells, half water or plasma. And if you pervert that to, you know, lots more cells than water, you get kind of thick, sludgy blood. And that's where we get the risk of um, like thromboembolic events or, or stroke events, which thankfully are very rare. But um, if your hematocrit is above 54%, uh, we would want to back off on therapies. That, that's kind of a, kind of the, the one danger thing that I think about in that population. Okay. And the last thing that I wanted to bring up and, and just to remind the audience, uh, the goal of all this, of all this therapy essentially is to help the patient find, uh, be comfortable, you know, reach the, the gender identity that they're comfortable with or sort of be living with a gender identity that they're comfortable with, whatever that is. We talked about gender diversity. So you're really working with the patient to uh, find the right combination of med- medical, surgical, and some patients from my reading might not even want any sort of medical or surgical therapy. They just want to do a social transition. But the mm-hmm. the surgical transition, Jeff, if you could talk a little bit about that in your patients, uh, there's there's top surgery, there's bottom surgery, uh, can you can you speak to those? Yeah, so real briefly, you know, the if you think about our the patient we started with, our natal sex male transition to female, um, they at, we want to wait to let the um, estrogen have its effect um, on breast blood development and breast development before you consider doing like a breast augmentation surgery, and so patients are advised to allow the tissue to fill out um, because they might actually reach a point where they're happy and not needing top surgery um, or you really want to expand that tissue with some fat enough so that the surgeon has something to work with. So that's the top surgery um, and probably the, the going from least to most invasive things. The next for invasiveness would be something like an orchiectomy, um, which uh, is sought, sought after and, and uh, uh, not, again, um, Maybe a little more invasive than a breast augmentation, but um, kind of the ne- that next step up in, in aggressiveness, if you will, or, or risks um, uh, that are involved. And then um, lastly, um, uh, for our male to female transition here, doing a vaginoplasty, 
Um, and so uh, it can be done two ways. You know, I'm not a surgeon, but just very simply, um, you know, inverting the anatomy that's already there can be done, um, which uh, is not the best because you have an epithelial layer that's now become an internal body cavity and that can sclerose down. So that requires dilators to keep open. Um, what is maybe more preferable is to use a piece of colon um, and transposition that into the into the usual place of uh, vaginal anatomy, and um, that being a mucosa is not going to close down. And so there are kind of different ways to go about it. Um, certainly, a full discussion of risks and possible complications uh, needs to be had. And uh, the biggest things we think about would be uh, risk of infection and then loss of sexual function because of you know working on kind of delicate, sensitive neuronal areas, you know, the pudendal nerve applying there, um, that is very challenging even with today's science and ability to get to match up with microsurgery and work out the way it normally plays. And so um, loss of sexual function and maybe challenges in neurologic function are the areas of concern, but that's what the transition for that patient would look like. Um, As Vin mentioned, there's very few surgeons in the United States identified for this. Um, I do have patients that will travel to other countries and pay out of pocket, um, and I have concerns about that. You know, they're away from their medical system and their support systems, and so it's not as easy as just doing that. How about from the the other the female to male transition? What sort of surgical procedures are being done there? Yep, just to walk through that again, from from like least to most invasive or aggressive. You know, the top surgery there would be a breast reduction. Um, surgery. Um, again, uh, be careful with surgeon selection. Um, when surgeons uh, that do a lot of breast surgery for cancer are involved, they may not have as much of the aesthetic uh, building piece in there. And so just ensuring that the surgeon has aestheticism as part of their practice and knowledge. Um, the, the next uh, in a kind of thinking about aggressiveness would be something like a hysterectomy, oophorectomy, um, which is, you know, a fairly commonly done uh, surgery just by OBGYNs. Um, and so that is not as, um, again, not a high risk or difficult to achieve um, sort of surgery um, and helps with, you know, preventing menses and, and removing an organ that maybe the person identifies with not uh, themselves. Um, and then the, the last, um, there are two kind of subcategories um, for what the bottom surgery we would consider. Um, the first um, would be what we call a metoidoplasty. Um, when you put a female natal sex on testosterone, you will have some growth of the clitoris. We call it clitoromegaly. That's uh, typical. Um, and that can start to look like a small phallus over time. And a surgeon can use a small piece of skin fold to kind of pull up and over that to have the creation of a small phallus. It's called the metoidoplasty. The advantage is it preserves some sexual function because you haven't disturbed the nerves and mm-hmm. neurologic function is usually quite good, although the aesthetic of the, of the uh, body part is maybe not exactly a penis. The last would be a phalloplasty, uh, which is probably of the things I've talked about surgically, the very most complicated. Um, uh, the way it's done, from my understanding, is a uh, tissue uh, transplant, usually from the forearm, is created um, and and rolled into a phallus and uh, placed into the appropriate part of the anatomy um, in the bottom. And um, uh, you, that requires microsurgery for vascular attachment, for neurologic attachment. Um, there are the, the rates of urologic complication are high. You know, getting the urine to pass through this newly created 
uh, passageway. Um, it can obstruct. And so really people are dedicating almost a year of their life to this surgery and to the healing of it. And so um, not to be taken lightly, but certainly, you know, of all the things we've talked about, there's all of those are kind of the options that are out there. It's important to have at least, I think, a quick familiarity of, you know, um, what may be there, um, just to have awareness of it um, and uh, of what may have already been done or where the person may go with things. And it's there's no right place. I mean, everyone has an idea of where they need to be in their transition. And I think just approaching the patient with, um, like Ben had said, a discussion, you know, listening to them, supporting them and helping them get to resources that are safe to, to use. I, I was reading that, uh, this was it from the WPATH standards of care, that there's generally they want a one, le- if you're going to go for a surgery, they want one letter from a mental health provider. And if you're going to go for a bot, that's for a top surgery, for a bottom surgery, they want that you should have two separate mental health providers sign off on the surgery that you've been appropriately evaluated and that they agree with the diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Is in in practice is that happening? Is that or is that sort of state by state or case by case? I think it does um, happen that way. I think surgeons are going to dictate that partly to protect. Um, you know, this is we're making a radical change in the patient, and um, uh, the, you know, I think when people have major time cosmetic, cosmetic surgeries, um, and not saying that this is cosmesis, but you know, this is typical to have behavioral health consent. Uh, form signed. When people have bariatric surgery, um, there are requirements to have behavioral health involved. So yeah, I think, you know, if this is not totally unique. Um, uh, I think it is going to be mandated from the surgeon side. And so um, I think it is going to happen um, because it's in the guidelines and, you know, people you know, should follow guidelines and, and uh, to stay in regs. But I think the idea is that we, you know, there's a radical change that's going to occur. We want to make sure that it's the person is ready. And um, again, these guidelines have changed a lot over time. Um, you know, it may seem unfair to have two gatekeepers um, to get to a surgery that a person really wants, um, but that's just where it is right now. Um, things may evolve over time, you know, as, as there are safer surgeons, safe, you know, better um, equipped behaviorists that can well identify patients and support them. And so as the system evolves, I think that may evolve too, but that's where it's at now. It's just all, uh, it's just all so new to me, Jeff. My, I, I've, I'm like information overload right now. This is, this, I know. is, this is good. I, I feel, I feel I'm starting to, to get, get a hold of this. I would say, you know, my first visit I fumbled through, um, and that was like less than two years ago. So I'm kind of very new in the field, which is why, uh, you know, I then had, I went to the course and kind of downloaded what I knew and, I think I fumbled through that first visit with maybe some uh, concern I would say something wrong or do something wrong. And I think, you know, I think if you just get in that room with the person that's seeking, earnestly seeking your help and you, um, you know, look at the guidelines and, um, you know, earnestly try and help them, I think it works out. And um, I think um, we've got a lot of built up concerns or fears years that are like way beyond, you know, any concern or fear I have for other patients that I see, like with liver failure, renal failure, anything else. And um, yeah, I think once you do one or two visits with folks that are seeking this kind of help, I think it dispels a lot. And um, just getting your feet wet and started, I think, 
you'll find, oh my gosh, I had like built this up to be some monumental thing that it wasn't. I think this is a good place to end. And uh, Jeff, I got to thank you so much for your time. It's been awesome uh, having an excuse to talk to you. And I know Paul Williams is feeling very threatened right now for his job. Oh, good. Yeah, <laughs> I think uh, he, he should be. I, we, I, we're, we're slam dunking it here. Um, I'll just end on the note to say, you know, uh, Matt, uh, you and your team are are just on point and perfect with everything. Uh, you have a huge following with the, the medical group down here. And so please keep with your mission of doing this. Um, uh, I will support you 100%. I'll also say that you picked a great time to have this discussion. We're, we're taping this now in the National Transgender Week, um, which is uh, uh, held every year to acknowledge uh, the struggles that uh, people go through in trying to seek care for this and to be acknowledged in, in what they're doing. And so, you know, this is a new topic. There's a lot we're learning about it. And uh, the, the curbsiders are leading the way with keeping that discussion going. All right, Jeff. That's, that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, dude. Yeah, if you need anything else, let me know. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. Please sign up to receive our weekly mailing list where you will get a copy of our expertly done show notes sent directly to your email. And please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can tell us, you can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter, at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto, without my co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham and Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. But we did have Paul's nemesis, Dr. Jeffrey Colburn, with us, who I'd like to thank. And I'd also like to thank Sarah Roberts, who helped write the questions for the show and produce the show notes. Thank you, Sarah. Have a good night.